welcome to the weekly podcast of Science in the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 6, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. This April marks the 15th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. While it seems like war can be explained in terms of politics, territory, and even economics, the genocidal impulse taps into unparalleled notions of the primal and the irrational. This week, we'll listen to a shortened version of a roundtable discussion that took place at the Philictady Center, a center for the multidisciplinary study of the imagination on the Upper East Side in New York City. A writer, a historian, a filmmaker, and a psychiatrist examine the psychobiology of aggression and genocide. This roundtable is introduced and moderated by Benedict Kiernan, director of the Genocide Studies Program at Yale University. Today we're going to have a roundtable, an interdisciplinary roundtable discussion uh, involving an educationalist, a filmmaker, a novelist, a psychiatrist, and a historian. And unfortunately, I have to make a statement about the tragic loss of uh, Alison Desforges, who died in the plane crash in Buffalo recently. She was the a definitive documenter of the Rwandan genocide. Uh, And uh, she devoted her life to uh, the study of human rights in Africa, working with Human Rights Watch. And her book, uh, which she published in 1999, Leave None to Tell the Story, really is the pioneering documentation of the Rwandan genocide. And she went on to continue to uh, report human rights violations in Rwanda and also Burundi and most recently in in Congo. And she even led the way to the study of the ongoing genocide in Darfur. Now, in the interests of a roundtable format, I've asked each of the panelists to make a short uh, five-minute presentation uh, going around the table. And I'm going to start with Taylor Krauss. He's an independent documentary filmmaker who worked under Ken Burns on the seven-part series, The War, about the Second World War. He's a graduate of Yale University with a degree in film studies, and he's spent the last uh, two and a half years in Rwanda as executive director of Voices of Rwanda, filming testimonies which are going to be used for uh, genocide education. So I'll ask Taylor Krauss to make the first presentation. Thanks, Professor Kiernan. Um, I came to this subject in 2004 in a way, my first trip to Rwanda. Of course, I had grown up hearing about the Holocaust and, and hearing about genocide, but it was that trip to Rwanda that really informed the fact that I'm now living in Rwanda and that we're collecting testimonies. And I think it's appropriate to have this roundtable here at the Philoctiti Center now, especially after the passing of Alison Deforge and on the eve of the 15th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide next month. As I'm not a historian, uh, nor an academic, but a documentary filmmaker, I think I wanted to come to the idea that since my world is about narrative and stories, that in fact ideas and myth can kill. And this is directly taken from from Prunier, who writes that ideas and myth can directly result in in killing. And as uh, referenced in the chapter on on the Rwandan genocide in Professor Kiernan's recent book, I think it's important to contextualize the Rwandan genocide in broader Rwandan history, not just having occurred over the course of three months, but a longer history of violence in order to understand how ideas and myth actually ultimately led to killing. If we go back in time, back to before colonialism, we can look at Rwandan society as broken down into a social class system where you had an elite Tutsi minority, 14% of the population, 
and a majority population, the Hutu majority, about 85% of the population, and the Twa, or the pygmy population. And these social class distinctions between the Hutu and Tutsi were actually very porous. You could become a Tutsi if you gained cattle, you could become a Hutu, but it was only until after World War I when, when the colony was handed over to the Belgians, and during that period of time leading up to the Second World War that you had anthropologists and colonialists coming in with their ideas and myths of the origins of the Tutsi and the origins of the Hutu. And ultimately, those were myths that were put in place in Rwanda society that contributed to propaganda and dehumanization and outsiderness during and leading up to the genocide in Rwanda. Um, I can speak more specifically, but uh, there is the time that, that ideas and myths lead to, to genocide. Okay, next we're going to hear from uh, Joyce Apsel, who's a master teacher of humanities in the liberal studies program at NYU and founder and director of Rights Works International, which is a human rights education project. She's past president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and editor of Darfur, Genocide Before Our Eyes, and co-editor with Helen Fine of Teaching About Genocide. Joyce Epsil. Leo Cooper, who Ben Kiernan mentioned uh, as one of the founding figures of genocide, wrote in one of his books that while animals engage in interspecies killing, Genocide is primarily a human crime. I've been teaching about genocide for the last three decades, and uh, I've also been teaching about peace. There's m much more interest in genocide than there is in peace. I thought that I would just give a few comments on some of the ironies and paradoxes of thinking about the politics and psychobiology of genocide. Uh, it's rather fitting that the last forum here was about war, because war and genocide often appear together. And the term genocide itself has produced a vocabulary of violence, a veritable lexicon. We don't have the same thing of a lexicon of peace, parsing destruction, politicide, eliticide, omnicide, democide, for example. The term genocide is often coveted by different groups in the sense that those who have suffered death and destruction want their history, their cause, to carry the genocidal label. Because in modern parlance, genocide is often seen as the crime of crimes. It's kind of an irony. Uh, we know uh, from studies of genocide that it is a complicated and multi-causal process. Also that it is repeated over and over again. The video testimonies we saw in Rwanda, the methods and processes, the terms chopping, wounds. We have seen bodily integrity invaded over and over again so that we understand that the genocidal process is one that is worldwide and is not distinctive to one community, to one class. Vulnerability, humiliation, loss among individuals, societies, and nations of sense of self, human attributes of aggression, domination, power, masochism, and may I add, terrible human inventiveness and creativity and ritual also are part of the patterns of genocide across boundaries. The methods of destruction we see repeated from the most ancient of times to the present. And while there are those who argue about the modernity of genocide, and there are certain features of the modernity of genocide, what we also see is the desecration, dehumanization, wounding, and terrible devastation 
that genocide brings, not only to its immediate victims, but of course to destroy future generations as well. We have been teaching about atrocity for a very long time. People need to hear the testimony and voices of different victims of genocide. But we also have to think about other ways to teach a lexicon of caring, of nurturing, of peace, of non-aggression. That seems to be a little bit harder for us to do. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, we'll now hear from Patricia McCormack, who is the author of three novels, Sold, An Account of Sexual Trafficking, My Brother's Keeper, A View of Teenage Substance Abuse, and Cut, An Intimate Portrait of a teen Teenager's Struggle with Self-Injury. And she also recently returned from Cambodia, where she interviewed survivors of the genocide there, and also talked with former Khmer Rouge soldiers, Patricia McCormack. Um, well, I'm not at all an expert on genocide. If anything, you can tell from my resume there that I'm a generalist. But um, my contribution, I think, to today's conversation is this recent trip that I took. And I have to say that um, I haven't really fully processed everything uh, from this trip uh, only two and a half weeks ago. My purpose there was to spend a lot of time with one survivor in particular, a man who's now 44 but who at age 11 was separated from his family and put in a work camp and then later survived by playing music to entertain the Khmer Rouge officials and to cover up the sounds of the killings at the death camp. He is a very unusual person. He returned to Cambodia later in life and found the few remaining master musicians. Most 90% of the artists were killed during Pol Pot's reign. And he found the remaining musicians and got them stipends and musical instruments. And they are now teaching the traditional music that would have been lost. They're teaching that music to the next generation uh, of children. He's unusual, too, because when he was in this death camp, he became sort of a um, secret Samaritan. He stole rice for the other children. He uh, snuck one little boy out of the, his place in line to be exterminated. He flirted with the Khmer Rouge teenage cadre, the girls, to get favors for the music teacher that he loved so much. He befriended this one soldier who was also young. He was an 18-year-old young man who was an orphan, and he's a real, and I interviewed him, he's, he's still Khmer Rouge, and he's still a true believer, and he still does not understand why the world vilifies the Khmer Rouge and why there's a trial going on right now. But he also had deep reserves of, of kindness and generosity and courage for this, this other young man. But I guess what we're here to talk about is not what makes one person a hero in a circumstance like this, but what, what allows so many people to be so cruel. And my focus is on the young people of the Cambodian genocide, the teenagers. And their identities were not yet formed. They were in a very pliable state as far as forging an identity. They were taken from their parents. They were very naive, many of them illiterate um, peasants, and in a very isolated situation. So they were indoctrinated to hate each other and lived in an, an atmosphere of paranoia where every day there would be meetings at the death camp and you would have to state the mistakes that you made today and then you would have to report on those around you. So you couldn't trust anybody and you were rewarded for ratting on each other. You also were not allowed to show any emotion and so humanity itself became a crime. That if you were to show your feelings or to take action upon the, the 
the violence that you saw, that would be cause for your own death. So you unlearn your humanity in those circumstances. Uh, next we're going to hear from Henry Parents, who is a survivor of the Holocaust and a professor of psychiatry at Jefferson Medical College. He's the author of 200 scientific and other papers and of eight books, including Dependence in Man, The Development of Aggression in Early Childhood, and Aggression in Our Children, and another book, Renewal of Life, Healing from the Holocaust. I've studied mother-child interactions for, in fact, we did a 37-year follow-up study recently. And I want to just mention to you a couple of things. Among the things that we found, and by the way, I want you to know that my Holocaust experience has determined all of my research work, from the development of aggression in early childhood to helping mothers be better mothers. By the way, my mother was killed in Auschwitz, and so was the rest of my family. And from there, I went to the prevention of violence, and I'm ending up now in a prevention of malignant prejudice. The first thing that I want to say very quickly is that we all have prejudices. And I was shocked when I discovered that in my own studies, given that I objected to that assumption that we all have prejudices. But then, knowing something about child development, in my field, that is, in psychoanalysis and psychiatry, I came to realize that there are two critical factors that operate in us that are obligatory for healthy development that make us all have prejudices. The first one is that in the process of attaching to objects, infants come into the world ready to attach, but not attached. In the process of attaching, there are certain reactions they have, one of which is stranger anxiety, which was described by Spitz. Now, stranger anxiety is in the service of protecting the child's attachment to its own specific mother and father, because the attachment process is sort of indiscriminate and an infant will attach just to anyone were it not for this built-in process of self-determination and object determination, that is, determination of the other. The second thing is, as Freud pointed out, we all bear the stamp made, he said, in Germany, but I would say in an intercession home, in a Kierman home, in a parent's home, we all bear the stamp of our family, our community, and we do this by the process of identification. So between stranger anxiety and identification, both of which are highly desirable, not only for attachment, but even for community formation, because we must identify with the members of our community in order to maintain the integrity of that community. Given that we all have what I call the nine prejudices, <laughs> then the question is, what's that other stuff that we all are so troubled by and so concerned about. And two factors operate to modify or to transform our benign prejudice into what I'm calling malignant prejudice. And those two factors are the degree to which we are made to feel hostility, because that hostility will invade, if you will, or color our benign prejudice and will await any target to be discharged. In studying aggression in children, I found that Freud's wonderful theory of aggression really didn't hold up. And as a result, I had to conceptualize a new model to work with aggression. And I discovered one factor that is pertinent to what I'm saying, and that is that it is excessive unpleasure that generates hostility in all of us. Right now, you all like me. I'm a nice guy. But if I start spitting at you and insulting you, 
you're going to have different feelings toward me, and they will be because I have injured, injured your narcissism. If you consider how many children are traumatized at home, and by the way, you all know that the greatest degree of traumatization in spite of these genocides, the greatest degree of traumatization occurs at home. So the one thing that transforms the benign prejudice into malignant prejudice is the degree to which we have been traumatized and we have accumulated hostility within us, which then colors the benign prejudice and transforms it. The second one is the great dishonor of civilization, and that is militant education. A dear friend of mine who read my Holocaust memoirs, who happens to have been from Hamburg, he died very recently, when he read my memoirs, wrote to me a several-page letter in which he said, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know any Jews, but I hated the Jews because I was taught that the Jews had killed Christ, and I was taught to hate the Jews. Education in the service of this kind of transmission of information and knowledge is a major contributor to malignant prejudice. Obviously, if we want to do something about genocides, I think we have to raise the question, how do we modify these things? Okay, thank you, Henry. From the point of view of a historian who's interested in documenting human rights violations, as we would call them now, I think one of the most important starting points is to identify the phenomenon, to define the phenomenon that we're talking about, uh, in this case, aggression and genocide. The definition I I'm quite happy with, I guess it's something like the legal definition of aggression is an unprovoked attack, although we do hear words like war of choice and uh, other words that could be used to describe the same thing. But there may be many other definitions of aggression in different disciplines, and in a, in a minute I'd like to throw the discussion open to an interdisciplinary discussion around the table of these definitions. Uh, genocide is much more difficult, perhaps, to define and the legal definition there, as many, many of you will probably know, is that it's uh, defined by the Genocide Convention of 1948 as acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part an ethnic, national, racial or religious group as such. And those acts are acts such as killing members of the group or imposing physical or mental harm on the group or uh, creating conditions of life calculated to destroy the group in whole or in part or removing children of the group to another group. So that's the legal definition of genocide. Helen Fine, as a sociologist, uh, came up with a slightly different one that wasn't restricted to ethnic, national, racial, or religious groups, but includes political or social groups. And so that's a different, more scholarly, perhaps, or most, more sociological definition of genocide. Uh, which does not just cover ethnic or national or racial or religious groups. There's also a definition which other scholars have come up with that defines genocide as any group that's targeted by the perpetrator. In other words, that the group doesn't have to have a real existence. It could be an invented or imaginary group, and that's the definition of Frank Chalk and Kurt Jonasson. So these are some of the definitions of genocide, but they usually revolve around intentional destruction of groups. Now, if we can use that definition, uh, focusing perhaps on racial or religious hatred, we can more easily identify what phenomena or catastrophes we want to describe as genocide. From the historian's point of view, what are the causes of genocide? What are the reasons why this phenomenon happens? It's a very important issue, and I'd also like to get some interdisciplinary feedback on, on that. 
one of the things that um, I think Ben really referred to is something we don't like to think about, and that is the utilitarian nature of genocide, and that in some ways genocide is rational and is effective, that some people, uh, some people gain territory, they have incentives, that there is a politics of genocide that's part of that rationality. And this is, of course, counter to that mythos of, oh, they all went crazy. And that's something that's difficult for us to accept. Taylor, would you like to come in there? Sure. I think the seeds of genocide that which you've laid out, you know, happening during times of war, all of that applies to Rwanda as well. We can look back in history and find that the first instance of political violence actually happened in 1959 in Rwanda with the Hutu Revolution and, and over the course of time. But in 1990, the RPF invaded the country. And for the four years that led up to the genocide, this was a time of war. You also mentioned economic destabilization with coffee prices bottoming out and the majority population who were farmers uh, becoming even more poor and, and political upheaval. Ultimately, when the president's plane was shot down on April 6, 1994, this created a vacuum which allowed the Hutu extremist party to, to fill that void. So every sort of category that you've, you've stated fits perfectly with the Rwandan genocide as well as cult of antiquity. I think what we're not looking at, some questions, um, how do societies end up turning on themselves, things like that, with little detailed stories that we find in, in narratives. For example, a story about a mother lining up her own children and looking at her children and saying, these two resemble mostly you know, the father, the Tutsi father, but these two, no. So I'm going to kill my own children. Now these things were happening in Rwanda. And, and that is perhaps you know, somehow disconnected from these larger things happening, you know, war and political upheaval, and also connected, but, but what leads even a mother to kill her own husband and her own children? Is it simply fear of regime? Those are other questions that I would raise in the conversation. All of the things that you're saying really make a great deal of sense, and I found that to be the case too. Thinking of, the, for me, the prototypic genocide, you know, what happened in the Holocaust, all the economic destabilization, the need for, you know, more room, because Germany is, after all, a encircled country, if you will, and space is limited, and every acre of ground is used. For those of you who've been to Germany can attest to that. But I, I'm still left with the question, you know, uh, we have three sons, uh, my wife and I. I recall during their growing up, they would have fights with each other. You know, you know, one steps in the other's room or one steps on the other's thing. But it was very interesting that when they became teenagers and they began to really, their cognitive functioning really began to evolve, we had these marvelous discussions at the table. And so here the guys would be talking about the atom bomb and, uh, you know, what can be done about that. And the next thing you knew, they had a fight. And so I used to say to them, wise guy that I am, if you two guys can't get along, how do you expect neighboring countries to get along? They weren't very happy with me when I would say that because unfortunately they recognized some element of psychological fact in that. I'm looking for the underlying common denominator of excessive unpleasure. That is, of excessive emotional pain, excessive psychic pain, breaks down in the economy. And by the way, we are in an era that has one of the parameters for the activation of a genocide. I think we need to be aware of that. And uh, the universal community, and I, of course, is much more aware of these things, which is very good for all of us. Life's tough, and no matter how good one's life is, there is pain. 
And the question is, how can we help our kids grow to tolerate pain more reasonably mm -hmm. and to not visit their distress and their complaints onto other people? Patricia, I wonder if the Khmer Rouge whom you interviewed had a concept of what he had done, what his regime had done. Did he have a name for it? If it, if it was justifiable, what did he call it? And also, what did he think was the cause of it? The thing that I think struck me about the man that I interviewed in depth was the culture of violence that he experienced as a child, and that he was orphaned and he lived along the, the border with Vietnam, where our government did its most hideous secret bombing of this country. And so I remember one of the things he said to me was, I saw the Americans drop gasoline, by which I think he means napalm. Mm -hmm. And he said, I saw them fry the people, or grill the people was his word. And so if that was his formative experience, it isn't much of a leap to think of him mm -hmm. becoming a perpetrator. What does he call what happened? It's so interesting, the euphemisms and the vagueness that you get or that I received when I tried to go directly at a question like that. Everybody would kind of take these crazy turns and they would blame others. They found a whole other set of outsiders upon whom to blame. But he now lives in a situation of such isolation. He's living in a part of the country where they're all Khmer Rouge or all former Khmer Rouge. And so they just reinforce this notion with each other that they are the aggrieved party and that these trials are a farce and an injustice. No, I just wanted to comment basically about some of the things that you've talked about, the two of you, in terms of uh, growing up and seeing these, the, seeing violences enacted and perhaps then that creating a perpetrator, some sort of psychic pain or trauma. I would pose the question then, do you expect then, then Holocaust survivors or survivors of the Rwandan genocide to then become aggressors themselves? And I think we're in dangerous territory here if we begin that conversation. But that's exactly where I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Danger ahead. That's exactly where I want to go. We don't see the survivors of, of the Rwandan genocide as going out and killing their neighbors. They are simply trying to move on with their lives. That's correct. And, and they are not aggressors themselves. That's correct. And, so and, and this whole that? idea mm. is perverted when people talk about uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. So right. I think that's an important conversation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you stated the word aggrieved, mm -hmm. all right, the aggrieved party, and that is a locus for intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in India, my friend Salman Akhtar, who's from India, tells me that there, the, um, they're, they're not genocides, but the crimes of the Hindus against the Muslims are a back-and-forth, back-and-forth, back-and-forth phenomenon. And so that the aggrieved party, and this is part of tradition, mm -hmm. part of what is transmitted, these people who did this to our ancestors, and you, if you're going to be a good whatever it is, you're going to have to go and want to kill the others. Mm -hmm. And the issue of the aggrieved party being burdened with the community dictum that you must avenge your particular community is one locus where uh, things can be done. Once the ego, as we say, learns something, even though time may pass and that thing may be forgotten, when a stimulus for its remembering occurs, it really comes back very easily. Think of a language that you haven't spoken for a long time. Joyce, I wonder as an educationalist if you could enlighten us on what kind of education can 
make it more likely that people will refuse to participate well, in genocide? I think there's a politics of genocide. That some events we call genocide and others we don't. Who decides what is called genocide and why? The actual genocide going on right now in Darfur, is it the only one? Why other kinds of atrocities aren't? So these are really important, I think, questions to look at. So how are we educating people in terms of which events do we record and how do we record them? Uh, one person's genocide or terror is another's liberation, of course. Right, right. So this is a very, a very difficult and political movement. I always like to tell the story of teaching a course at the New School University to 25 uh, undergraduates uh, who chose it as an elective. And it was called Cultures of Peace and Reconciliation. And the first day I asked them, they were 18 to 22 years old, and I asked them what the term altruism meant. Not one knew. Mm. One of our issues, again, and I think I, I said this in my opening comments, is that you know education is educare, to lead out. We can't not acknowledge aggression, conflict, war, genocide, and we do have a wonderful lexicon of terms and scholarly debates on this. But the issue of people learning about cooperation, about social justice, about community building is something that's more difficult. Now, I wanted to ask Henry whether the issue of aggression that applies in committing genocide is, is the same phenomenon that motivates someone to stand up and oppose it and, and fight against it, or are we talking about a different, different phenomenon? We're talking about a different aggression, and that's one of the things that I came to really insist on in terms of the work that we saw. There is aggression that is non-destructive. And that's my concern about the use of the word aggression here, yeah. because we're really talking about hostility and hate, and, and that's different. Mm -hmm. I think that there is destructive, that there is aggression that is healthy. I think that serves adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that could be what is serving those who need to protect and need mm -hmm. to fight against the destruction mm -hmm. of others. The hostility and hate really arises, I believe, from mostly uh, intrapsychic pain that becomes expressed, that can be harnessed. When Hitler did what he did, mm -hmm. there are zillions of followers, mm -hmm. right? Well, they themselves would not have acted that way. But given a leader who can mobilize that uh, hostility that has accumulated in them, you can get an army of people. You know the old mm -hmm. song, give me 10 men who are stout-hearted mm -hmm. men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more, something like that. Yeah. But the, the one thing I did want to say, the story of the perpetrators, and I think that on, and in, in the genocides, I think it's important to get the experience of the perpetrators, get them to uh, verbalize some of the things that they experienced. Because if what has been found in the Holocaust model applies to the model of other genocides, then there is a critical factor that can be brought to play in prevention. Mm -hmm. For example, Dan Baron from Israel has done a great deal of work in interviewing the children of survivors with the children of perpetrators. And what's come out of that is fascinating. As one of the children of perpetrators said to another in rage, you know, you've suffered, but you have your pride. I have suffered, and I live with shame. I've written a paper on that, that if we can harness the awareness of the shame that, he, that perpetrators yield to their children and the generation after, mm -hmm. 
That could be a deterrent. I don't know. But I think we've got to try everything. Thanks for listening. If you love Science in the City podcasts, we encourage you to support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do this by visiting us online at www.nyas.org. You can subscribe to Science in the City podcasts on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to our iTunes library if you just search Science and the City in our iTunes search bar. And if you have questions or comments about anything you hear on Science in the City podcast or anything you see on the Science in the City website, please let us know. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, www.scienceandthecity.org. And we'll see you next week.